1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colebrook, your host for today's episode. I'm joined today by Lauren Gutterman, an assistant professor of American studies at University of Texas at Austin and author of the new book, Her Neighbour's Wife, A History of Lesbian Desire Within Marriage, which has just been released by University of Pennsylvania Press. Addressing the drought of serious scholarship on lesbian history, her neighbour's wife examines the personal experiences and public representation of wives who desired women in the United States since 1945. Lauren, welcome to the program, and it's really fantastic to have you on today.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm glad to be here.
1: Great. So I was wondering if you could just begin by describing the origins of her neighbor's wife. Um, did it emerge out of a PhD, PhD dissertation, um, and how did you conceive the topic, if so?
0: Sure. Um, well, uh, it did begin as a dissertation in the History Department at New York University, Um, and I, you know, wasn't sure for a long time exactly what I was going to focus on for my dissertation project. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something that centered on queer women, but I wasn't quite sure how. Um, I had realized by that point that if I was going to look at many of the kind of traditional places that historians uh, of the LGBTQ past have looked um, in arrest records, at bars mm-hmm. or community spaces, that men's stories would be most likely to predominate those of women. Um mm-hmm. So I wasn't quite sure how I was going to focus on women. Um, and I started reading some lesbian pulp novels and looking at kind of post war psychiatric writings about lesbianism. And um, I was also working on um, an LGBTQ history website called outhistory.org at the time. Um, and the historian John D'Emilio had written a post about Valerie Taylor, who was a lesbian pulp novelist and who had been married and had lesbian relationships. Um, so all these things kind of came together at the same time and in the pulp novels and psychiatric literature, you know, people were talking about this figure of the um, married lesbian or lesbian wife. And so I kind of wanted to think about um, if there was truth behind this figure. Um, And so uh, my original plan for my dissertation was to focus on three women, Valerie Taylor, um, Del Martin, who was a longtime leader of the Daughters of Belitis, um, and Lorraine Hansberry, the Civil Rights Act activist and playwright. Um, And I knew they had all been married and experienced lesbian desires. Um, And so I just didn't I didn't really think at the time it would be possible to do a broad scale social history. Of um, this population. Um, eventually what happened was uh, I couldn't access those women's personal papers for various reasons. But in the process of doing this research, I went to the GLBT uh, Historical Society at uh in San Francisco, um, and there I just found uh, you know tons and tons of letters that married women had written um, to the daughters of Belitis, um, the nation's earliest lesbian rights group, and um, and realized that it would be possible to kind of tell a, a broad scale um, story about this group of women.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. So um, what uh, tools did you use to uncover that history? You mentioned in the introduction, for example, that you used so you conducted a lot of oral interviews. Uh, how did you try and track down any other archival sources and how did you go about trying to locate individuals who might be good narrators?
0: Yeah, Um. well, I mean, I think the challenge with doing this history is that because so many, um, LGBT archival collections, you know, are really informed by, um, contemporary politics and a desire to advance LGBT rights, um, that, you know, there's been less interest in, um, parts of people's lives, um, when they were not out, right? Or, um, people who were not politically active, um, And so in a lot of these archives um, with women who eventually came to identify as lesbian or bisexual, um, you know, it's not kind of in uh, the headings for someone's oral history interview um, or in their papers, right? The fact that they're married is something that's often um, marginalized within finding AIDS. Um, So uh, because it's a part of people's queer people's past that often seems less important or, um, significant. Um, so it was really kind of, um, uh, just a process of like searching through oral history interviews, um, and, and pulling out the stories, um, about women who had been married, um, or in some cases, um, interviews that historians had conducted with women who were the lovers of women who had been married. Um, So I was able to find probably around 60, you know, or so interviews that other scholars had conducted in the 80s or 90s um, with women who had been married or been the lovers of married women. Um, I conducted around 30 myself, um, more contemporary cases, um, uh, and then um, found uh, really, I mean, so many of the women's stories that I found, hundreds of them really came from letters that women wrote to the daughters of Belitis um, between, you know, the 1950s and the early 1980s hmm.
1: And what were those uh, letters like? Were they trying to kind of uh, attach themselves to the gay rights movement, quote unquote, or were they more detached than that?
0: Um, well, th- there's really a, a great range in the letters. Um, so some of them are just like a brief note, you know, confirming a membership or um, uh, subscribing to the Daughters of Belitis publication, the latter. Um, and, you know, maybe it will just say Mrs. or it will say, you know, maybe something a little bit more than that. Please, you know, use a plain package to send this or, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Here's my phone number, but be careful when you call because my husband works from this time to this time. Um, so there's some kind of brief correspondence like that. Um, and then there were also just. Letters that were just pages and pages long in which women talk about their kind of entire um, sexual histories and kind of, uh, you know, erotic and romantic feelings for women and how that's changed over their lives. Or women talking about how they're in the midst of this affair with their neighbor and don't know what to do about it. Um and uh, I mean, and I, I mean, many of those women were not interested in becoming politically involved. Um, but a surprising number were, you know, even if they couldn't be out necessarily, married women contributed to um, the latter by writing short stories or um, uh, letters that they sent in anom- anom- anonymously. <laughs> um, And, uh, you know, some women were married and did go to uh, gatherings of the Daughters of Belitis or other homophile groups. Um, So I was really surprised by the extent to which some married women were able and interested in participating. Um, There's a great uh, story about one married woman um, from Portland, Oregon, who um, was married and had four kids and, um, but was really politicized about her sexuality and was trying to create a daughter's of oblivious chapter there um, and get uh, uh, people to subscribe to the latter. And in the course of that kind of organizing met and fell in love with another married woman um, in the early sixties and they both eventually left their marriages. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was surprising how many women, um were willing to become involved. Mm. Uh
1: so just doubling back slightly to your oral interviews, I was wondering how you went about a locating those people mm-hmm. and secondly, uh whether, I mean something you've talked about in your uh, other published work, how the assumptions of the modern uh gay rights movement informed some of their memories.
0: Sure, um so I initially ran into kind of more trouble than I expected um in trying to find women to interview. Um I reached out to the organization Old Lesbians Organizing for Change, OLAC, and mm-hmm. at the time they had a kind of research gatekeeper who would um insulate take requests for research um you know and and go through those before um, sending them on to the organization's members so they weren't kind of overrun with these requests. And the woman that I that I had emailed with um, was really um, uh, not <laughs> pleased with this project. Um, and in ways that I later came to recognize, you know, that her concerns were right. Um, but she had big concerns about me wanting to talk about what was for many of these women, the most painful period of their lives um, of kind of balancing marriage and same sex desires. And, um, you know, in the case of most of their members, right, ultimately choosing to leave their marriages. Um, And so she was basically like, no. (laughs) And, and I was really perturbed by that. Um, so, I mean, a little by little, I did find women through word of mouth to interview. Um, uh, and um, later I put out an ad in Lesbian Connection, um, which is the kind of largest and longest lived kind of lesbian um, publication in the country. Um, and I did find um, a bunch of women to interview through that Um Mm, and, what
1: were the, uh, the kinds of motivations for responding to that kind of ad? Uh, were they
0: mm-hmm.
1: wanting to record their own story? Um, wh- 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 why, did they, why did they respond mm-hmm. to that question?
0: I think um, it was a desire to um, contribute to a history that they felt they hadn't seen represented. Um, to share their stories in the helps in the, in the hopes of helping maybe helping someone else um, or speaking to someone else who mm-hmm. had gone through similar struggles. Um, so in general, I'd say it was a kind of desire to help um, others at a kind of and other kind of lesbian or bisexual or queer women um, as a community by kind of sharing their history and their stories.
1: Uh, did that method skew the demographics of the people you interviewed at all?
0: I'm sure it did. Um, I'm sure if I had had reached out to a different um, publication or um, you know one that didn't kind of have roots in the lesbian feminist movement, mm-hmm. um, that I might have found more women who identified as bisexual or queer um and uh i might have found women you know with with different experiences but um a lot of these women that i spoke with um you know had kind of left marriages in the 80s or 90s or even more recently than that um and come out and into a kind of lesbian community um and i think you know for many of them, you know, in the time in which they're coming out and the resources that are available to them and the language that's available to them, you know, was uh, primarily a kind of a language of lesbian identity and community.
1: Mm. Did you speak to any people who are still married to uh, their husband? I did. Oh, wow, what was that like?
0: Well, um, it differs. Um, there's one woman um, that I spoke to, um, we, uh, connected, or I got more of her story kind of actually after I'd almost finished the book. Um, and she, uh, I knew this though, from the oral history that I'd read, um, she remained married with her husband for their entire lives. Um, all, but they didn't, they ultimately lived separately. So, um, she, you know, recognized herself as, uh, lesbian um and you know her husband had kind of known about this um and in the 70s you know they were living in um i believe st louis at the time and she said you know i'm gonna i'm moving out and doing my own thing and going to oregon you know and so they remained married um they had several children together but she wanted to live um you know a separate life and her husband was accepting of that. Um, And that, you know, through remaining married, you know, she would be able to continue to get kind of financial benefits through him. Um, Neither one of them was just interested in getting a divorce. Um, And there was another woman I spoke with in Michigan who um, had Uh, married, I believe in the early 60s, had two kids with her husband. Um, Eventually, both of them kind of realized that their primary attractions were with people of the same sex. And um, this, I mean, this was only a few years ago when I spoke with her and um, she and her husband were still married, but they lived in separate houses next door to each other, actually. Wow. So I think this kind of flexibility in in marriage and creativity and working out relationships was something that definitely comes through in the study.
1: Great. Well, that rather uh, fortuitously segues nicely into my next question, which uh, concerns your description of marriage as queer in your introduction, Mm -hmm. which for many scholars would be a counterintuitive statement about the post-war United States. So I was wondering, you've already touched on this in many respects, but what sense was marriage queer given its role in the heteronormative breadwinner ideal of the 1950s? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I just find that women, you know, wives and mothers across this time period, but especially in the post-war period, immediate post-war period, when we might think they had no way of acting on these same-sex desires, um, really were able to do so to a much greater degree than we might expect. Um, And, you know, they did so not by going to for the most part, to kind of gay and lesbian bars, Um, but really by having relationships with women they were friends with, women they met at work or at church or in their family neighborhood, women who were typically also wives and mothers or had kids around the same ages. Um, I mean, so in one sense, just kind of showing that that ability to act on same sex desire was present in um, post-war marriage, and especially in the 50s and 60s, many husbands didn't chose not to confront their wives explicitly about this, and many yeah. wives, you know, didn't want to ex- discuss it explicitly with their husbands either. And so there was this kind of, in many marriages that I found, a kind of quiet agreement to. Um, Uh, not talk about certain things in their relationship. And in many cases, I think this was because husbands themselves had their own extramarital relationships, or they didn't take their wives' same-sex affairs seriously, or they just didn't want to risk divorce, and they didn't think that this was something that could ultimately threaten the marriage. Um, And so um, that kind of I mean, I think that the the fear of getting divorced, the desire to remain married at all costs, um, really meant that for many couples to survive in the fifties and sixties, you know, they just didn't talk about certain things <laughs> and didn't go certain places. And, you know, you know, many husbands found letters that their wives had written to lovers um, uh, or women that they were in love with, and just chose not to talk about it. You mm-hmm. know, um, until you know, if or until they got divorced and then could use it against them in a in a um, divorce case. But you know, most couples, most husbands in the 50s and 60s chose not to do that um, because it was so stigmatized. So I think in one sense it was queer and that we can see through these women's, these wives' lives, there was this space within marriage um, for same-sex affairs um, and same-sex desires. And then thinking about how these women change our understanding of marriage in this period more broadly, I think it just underlines the fact that marriage worked really differently than um, other state institutions, right? So if you're applying for military service or citizenship or employment in the federal government, you know, there were all these bureaucratic efforts to investigate people's sexuality or their sexual histories. Um, and marriage was different than that. You know, you didn't have to prove you're straight (laughs) to marry someone of the opposite sex, right? You didn't have to prove that you'd never engaged in a queer relationship or gone to a gay or lesbian bar or anything like that. And I think this kind of, um, uh, the, the reluctance on the part of the state to police kind of same-sex desires within marriage was precisely because um, this was the goal, right? To get everyone, regardless of their hidden sexual desires or past sexual experiences or sexual identities, to get them into marriage, to get them into this institution. Um, and that that was the best way to kind of elide and stigmatize homosexuality.
1: Mm. So ironically, in many respects, marriage offers a kind of counterexample to the straight state and the policing of homosexuality that's kind of famously been put forward by scholars like Margot Cannaday.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would say it's an exception to the straight state because it, this, the state was still invested in these marriages and maintaining an appearance of straightness. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it just didn't go all that far into, you know, enforcing it. And certainly as people like Alison Lefkowitz have shown um, in uh, divorce cases, husbands, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when they did bring cases forward of examples of their wise lesbianism into custody battles or um, divorce battles, they were very successful. Um, Mm. but it's just that very few husbands chose to do that. Um, and I think that there's probably a lot of the research I found that I thought was interesting also showed that a lot happened behind closed doors that didn't make it into the legal record. So, um, one woman, I, uh, I mean, multiple women, really, their husbands would try and bring evidence of their wives' same-sex desires or experiences into court. And the judges would say, we're not going to, I don't believe this. You know, we're not, or we're not going to, this is too tawdry, right? We're not going to bring this into court. And so I think there was, um, at the same time, while there were clear efforts to punish women, wives who'd engaged in same-sex relationships, there were was also an effort um, by many judges and husbands and lawyers to kind of push this all under the rug.
1: Mm. Okay, so at the start of my um, introduction in this podcast, I mentioned briefly that there's a a dearth of scholarship on lesbian history, which this book does quite a bit to address. So uh, I was wondering how centering the experiences of these women upends some of the assumptions we have about LGBT in the, in the mid-century United States?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think in two big ways. One, you know, is that even though there's a scholarship that has challenged the kind of focus on urban spaces um, as the center of post-war queer life, um, challenged the focus on bars and other public places, um, I still think that when we think about possibilities for queer life in the post-war period, that's what immediately comes to mind. Um, You know, gay and lesbian bars in places like San Francisco or New York or other smaller cities across the country. Um, And so in one way, I think these women show um, the women in my study came from a range of geographic locations across the country in cities, suburbs, and even rural areas. Um, And, their experiences really challenged that focus on public, urban, gay and lesbian spaces. Um, so that whether these women lived in rural areas or suburban areas or even in urban areas, for the most part, they tended to act on their same-sex desires with women who they encountered in spaces that were not explicitly queer, um, just in their kind of daily lives. And, you know, I think the study shows that even places that we think of as at the heart of kind of post-war heterosexual normalcy, like the suburbs, um, there could be opportunities for lesbian desire and relationships. Um, And then I think the project, by focusing on women, also kind of challenges or complicates the the conventional chronology we have of post-war gay history um, in which we really understand, you know, the 50s and 60s as the height of anti-gay policing um, and that this is something that decreases, you know, over time, especially as gay liberationists um, begin to challenge uh, the policing of queer people and queer spaces. Um, But for the women in my study, you know, as I've been suggesting already, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they they weren't super concerned about getting arrested in a gay bar raid or, um, you know, being uh, policed in some way. Um, And so many of them felt a somewhat misleading sense of freedom and security within marriage to act on these desires that um, many of them were disabused of in the process of leaving their marriages. Um, And that didn't really begin to happen in, in major numbers, right, until the 1970s and 80s. And so that's when these women really, these married women really began to experience the, the ability of the state to police their behaviors, to, um, in, interrogate their sexual histories, to embarrass and shame them, um, and to punish them in terms of taking away, um, you know, their rights to child custody or, um, their claims, uh, for financial assets upon the dissolution of a marriage. So for these women, they really begin to have the most direct confrontation with the state, um, and the most kind of painful discrimination, um, not until the 70s and 80s.
1: Mm. Uh, So given that quite a few of these women did not explicitly associate with the gay rights movement in its nascent form as you just outlined i'm fascinated to hear what term you use to describe them you use the term queer lesbian mm-hmm. something else
0: mm-hmm. um well i mean i make a note of this in the introduction language is a real challenge in this study um mm. i really don't i i Explicitly say I'm not going to refer to them as queer as a group, even though I think they reveal a kind of queerness of marriage. Um, but these women were really invested in normativity, um, you know, uh, at least for much of their lives, right? And fulfilled in many ways outwardly the standards of, of you know, middle class for most of them and heterosexual normalcy, at least outwardly. Um, So I was hesitant to use that term queer because of their investment in kind of normative ideals. Um, The language, I try and follow the language that they use. Um, And one big change that I chart over the course of the book is that in the 50s and 60s, there's a kind of flexibility in the term lesbian or homosexual that disappears over time. So a lot of women in their letters to the daughters of Belitis, for example, would describe themselves, wouldn't say I am a lesbian, but would say I have lesbian inclinations or homosexual tendencies. You know, and this language echoed the, you know, post-war psychiatric writing um, in which, you know, psychiatrists thought of this uh, homosexuality, right, as a a mental illness, as uh, neurosis, as something people needed to overcome. Um, and, but they also thought of it, you know, as a kind of flexible. Um, and, uh, and it's really in the 70s, um, with the gay liberation movement and lesbian feminism, that these activists, you know, try and bring a greater force to defining these terms, right? You're either gay, you know, or you're not, you need to claim this identity wholly and absolutely, you know, or you're not with us. Um, and so over time, these women increasingly define themselves or as lesbian or identified as lesbian, but in the, um, earlier part of the period, um, they were often unclear about how they described their sexual, sexual identities. Mm.
1: Uh, did any openly identify as bisexual? Just out of interest?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was something also that became more pertinent over time. So in the 50s and 60s, I think because of that kind of flexibility of the terms lesbian and homosexual, like bisexual identity was not really seen as a discrete thing um, by either lesbian and gay activists or by psychiatric experts. Um, And so it's really... In the 70s and 80s, when lesbian feminists are saying, um, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't be a lesbian and be married or commit yourself to men, or, um, you know, you really need to, you know, pick a side that um, by policing the boundaries of lesbian identity more forcefully, they also throw into greater relief, a a bisexual identity as an option for women, even though it was one that they were, um, that lesbian feminist activists were very critical of. Um, So over the course of the time period that I study, um, it became more common for uh, married women to identify um, as bisexual, to use that term, um, than it was in the 50s and 60s.
1: Mm. Okay so this solidifying in the 1960s and 70s of the hetero homo binary meant that for a lot of these women they could no longer ignore the gay rights movement so I was wondering how gay liberation how the gay liberation movement and lesbian feminism in particular informed the experiences of these women after the 1970s.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean uh, in the I mean, to begin with this kind of new pressure to pick a label, um, to uh, to label yourself publicly, right, to come out to friends and family, um, this is a new political pressure that these women are beginning to experience, um, that they didn't feel from gay and lesbian activists in the 50s and 60s. So I talk about the ways the Daughters of Bo- Activists and the Daughters of Belitis, you know, Although they did kind of put increasing pressure on married women um, to be honest with themselves and to come out publicly and to leave their marriages over time, you know, for the most part, they were pretty accepting of married women. Um, But uh, in the 70s, there's a new pressure from lesbian feminists and gay activists to choose between uh, an openly lesbian life and Uh, participation in a broader lesbian community or marriage and a a new pressure that um, these women experience that you can't do both, right? You're going to have to choose. Um, So then we see that in the fact that many of these women began to Um, explicitly voice their same-sex desires to their husbands um, and tell their husbands, you know, explicitly if they were in a relationship with another woman, Um, and also increasingly to choose divorce, to believe um, that this was not going to be compatible um, in a way uh, that women earlier didn't necessarily have to choose.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the program today, Lauren. I think we've just about run out of time. I have one final question, though, one that scholars often dread, I think, and that is, what are you working on now?
0: Sure. Um... Well, something that surprised me in this project was how many women talked about experiencing childhood sexual abuse um, and how often they connected that to their um, lesbian or bisexual identity, not in a simplistic causal way, um, but it was a connection that people made or talked about or even thought to bring up. Um, And so uh, right now, I've been thinking about kind of how we came to see queerness and childhood sexual abuse as connected, Um, you know, where this connection came from, how it's evolved over time, um, and how different groups of people have used this connection for different political ends. So, you know, uh, some of the earliest um, activists in the what was then called the Incest Survivors Movement in the late 70s and 80s Often came from the lesbian feminist movement. um, And they argued that this connection or framed this connection um, in a positive way, right? That to come to a lesbian identity after experiencing childhood sexual abuse was a sign of emotional maturity and um, health um, and uh, uh, overcoming trauma. Um, But then, of course, we know that even today, Religious conversion therapists in particular, you know, argue that um, a connection between uh, lesbianism or queerness more broadly, you know, in a history of childhood sexual abuse is evidence that queerness can be cured, right? That um, that it has trauma at its root, um, and that if you deal with that underlying trauma, you don't have to be gay. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that sounds like a fascinating uh, topic of inquiry, and i very much look forward to reading uh, your output and finished result. Um, Well, that is all we have time for on today's episode. So thank you very much again, Lauren, for being on the program. And I really do urge listeners to read the book. It's an exciting and original study, which will no doubt open up new avenues of scholarship on lesbian history.
0: Well, thank you so much, Stephen.